look at uh, what the Bible says about our resurrected bodies. Because so much of understanding our life on the earth after the resurrection, when the new Jerusalem, when heaven descends to the earth and the new Jerusalem, so much of understanding that is related to understanding what kind of body that we're going to have. Roman number one, we will have a resurrected body like the one Jesus has. Paragraph A, we'll have a resurrected body that's conformed to Jesus' resurrected body. Philippians chapter 3, it says our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for Jesus, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body. Now notice that it doesn't say that the Lord is going to replace our lowly body. He's actually going to transform it. The body that you will have in the resurrection is actually the body you have now. Someone said, oh no. (laughs) Minus the lowly part. Now one thing that I have... uh, encountered over the years is that many believers do not really believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believe in getting a supernatural body when Jesus comes, but they don't really believe in the resurrection of the dead because the resurrection of the dead is not getting a supernatural body. It's the Lord taking the actual decomposed flesh that's in the ground called a seed and taking that very substance with the same DNA and raising that from the dead. That's what the resurrection is. It's not that we die, our body goes away, we go to heaven, then the Lord says, hey, here's a new body. He actually raises our new body from the depths of the earth or the sea in the literal, actual DNA. Only the Lord can find it. You know, centuries later after someone dies, but the Lord... The Scripture called the seed from which the Lord raises the resurrected body out of that seed. It's important to understand you will actually have the same DNA. Don't worry. The very best design that God could come up with in His wisdom and His power. I mean, God the Father thought this thing through thoroughly, and at the very measure of His wisdom, the very... uh, Extent of his wisdom and his power, he exercised it and gave Jesus the very best design that God could come up with and then said, we will have one like unto his. It will have some of the, many of the same capacities in our body as well. Now, the reason what the Father had in mind when he designed Jesus' physical resurrected body He had in mind the environment of which we will live in forever. And that, as we've looked at many times, Ephesians 1.10, God is going to bring together the natural realm and the spirit realm together when heaven descends to the earth in the new Jerusalem. The two realms will coexist together in complete harmony. There will be no collision of the natural and the spirit like there is now. Those realms will exist together and they will fully complement and enhance one another. Well, Jesus, God the Father came up, designed a body for Jesus that could function fully in the natural realm with all the material, physical properties 
and could fully function in the supernatural realm with the spiritual capacities as well. And when the Father brought both realms together in the design of the resurrected body, if I'm just using this word design, I don't know what a better, uh, uh, what a other word to use, so that we would have supernatural and natural capabilities joined together, enhancing uh, both dimensions of our being instead of one opposing the other. The reason God did this, because He wanted Jesus to be able to express the fullness of the glory of God in this new environment of heaven and earth coming together. So, beloved, make this really personal about your life. God has designed a physical body for you in which you could dwell in the environment, the unique environment of both realms coming together, and that you could express the glory of God and move freely in both realms and comfortably like a fish in water, you will be as comfortable in the supernatural realm as you will be in the physical realm. There will be no sense of tension in those two realms. You will, you in your resurrected body, with your glorified spirit and body, you will be just as comfortable in the natural realm as the, phys- as the supernatural and just as comfortable in the supernatural as you will be the natural. Now, again, I, I, I urge you to take the, this, this teaching of the resurrected body really personal. Think of yourself as in the doctor's office, and the doctor comes and he says, It's confirmed. You have a serious terminal disease. You're going to die. That's the sentence over the entire human race. You are going to die. There's one generation that will meet the Lord in the air, but laying that aside... You uh, have a death sentence. It's a terminal disease. But the doctor says, wait a second. Wait a second. There is an answer. There is a solution. With the most attentiveness, you would lean forward and say, tell me about it. And the doctor says, I'm sure this will work. Here's the plan. You would be listening with such detail. You would be picturing yourself going through that process and coming out whole. You'd be listening. Your, Your whole life would be going before you as you were listening to that. Well... God is giving us the solution to our body with a terminal disease. And you need to really make this personal. This isn't just a Bible doctrine that's kind of unrelated. You have a terminal disease, and the great physician is describing the answer tailor-made for you, and it's real, and it has your name on it. It says uh, in paragraph C, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, It says, now Christ, verse 20, is risen from the dead. And listen, here's an interesting word. He has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, those that are fallen asleep is a biblical way of saying those that have died physically. Our spirit is not asleep. When we die physically, our spirit goes to be with the Lord. Philippians 1, 21 to 23. To depart from the body is to be with the Lord. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 to 23. In another uh, a verse, it says, Second, I don't have this on the note, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. Uh, we will be with the Lord. We'll, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. We will be with the Lord, our spirit. The moment we die, we're with the Lord. But our physical body uh, goes into the ground and it decomposes. And that physical body lying in the ground or in the bottom of the sea is described in the Bible as the body has fallen asleep. Not our spirit, but only our body. 
Our spirit is completely conscious and completely alert. I've uh, uh, really enjoyed over the years studying different or reading different testimonies of people that have had death experiences. And it's been a hobby, and as well as uh, I take it personal, <laughs> it's my future as well, if, the, if what the people are saying is, is biblically uh, true. I mean, others, you know, different people in false religions, you know, will say things that, that, that are false because they're being deceived by demons, even in death experiences. But one of the uh, characteristic points, I'm, I'm on a bunny trail, it has nothing to do with this, just so you know, I'm getting out there. Uh, one of the characteristic points of people that die is that when they die, it happens over and over and over, they don't know they died. Like the guy has the car wreck, and after the car wreck, I'm talking about these near-death experiences where they die and their spirit leaves their body and then they come back. There's, you know, just tremendous amount of testimonies through history of people that have had that kind of experience. The guy has the car wreck, and he thinks, wow, that was a close call. Wow. I feel okay. And he kind of gets up to brush off, and he looks down and he sees himself, and he goes, and he's confused. I've talked to several that have had death experiences like that. They said, it, it didn't make sense. I didn't, I couldn't, it took me a minute to figure out who the guy on the ground was that looked like me. Because our spirit is so alive and so conscious that many people, and this is a guess, of course, you know, we don't have limited uh, uh, testimony, but many that have given testimony did not know in the moment they died, they actually died because they're that awake and they're that alive and they're that conscious in their spirit. So when it says, the first fruits of those that have fallen asleep, our body, our physical body falls asleep, not our spirit man. Our spirit man is completely, fully alive every, every second of the death process, the physical death process. But here's the point, now I'm back on the, on the notes here. It says, now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits. Now a first fruits... Uh, Paul is using an agricultural metaphor, one that everybody in, the, in Israel would have been familiar with, that the farmer would go and they would take the first fruits, they would take the part of the crops that, became, that were harvested first, and the first fruits uh, were offered to the Lord, and they were a statement that a great harvest was coming after it that was of like kind. And so... Jesus is called the first fruits, and the point of this this metaphor is uh, of using an agricultural metaphor is that our body will be like His. He is the first of a new order of human beings. With physical bodies, with supernatural capacities uh, in their physical bodies. Now, it's interesting, Jesus has become the first fruits, but because before he was a man, before the incarnation, and before he died, this was not part of his experience. It's something he became that he was not beforehand. You know, it's always interesting when any of these few Bible verses that talk about Jesus' experience as a man, where he experiences something that he never experienced before as God from eternity, he had never been a first fruits because he had to be a man that died and rose to become the first fruits. What an 
What an exhilarating part of his own story. When we talk to the Lord someday, what was it like the moment you became the first fruits for all of us? When the power of God touched the grave, the mighty power of your Father, and, and you burst forth out of the tomb. What was it like you became the first human to bring both realms together in your humanity? Okay, let's go to paragraph D. I give you a few verses in paragraph D, just a little bit, a little uh, kind of uh, overview of some passages to go study this out more on your own. So, if you want to study more, uh, uh, check out those passages there about uh, our about Jesus' resurrection. Because when we study Jesus' resurrection, what he was like, what his body was like in the resurrection, then we have insight into what our body will be like when we're resurrected. And that's what we're going to do a little bit tonight. Now, after Jesus rose from the dead, he had, had all, there were a number of different categories of experience. There were times where people knew him. They recognized him. Jesus, it's you. There were times where he manifested his glory and he terrified them. In his resurrected body, he stood before them and the fear of God, they they saw his manifest glory. There were times where he so restrained his glory, he was so utterly human in the eyes and perspective of the people, they could never imagine this is a man raised from the dead in the power of God. And so what we learn from these different uh, insights from the Bible is that Jesus could release his glory or he could restrain his glory depending on the circumstance. Now, I don't know what the what dictates it, but we know that according to this testimony of Jesus's the many times that, that I mean the uh, passages we have that give us insight into his uh, appearing after the resurrected, he could release his glory or restrain it and the conclusion that I have is that we will be able to do that as well. There are times where you will release the fullness of the glory God has released into your resurrected body, and there will be times where you will restrain it. Now, I've read, uh, now, I can't, uh, uh, you know, you can't take testimonies of believers who've had heavenly experiences, you can't take those as equal to Scripture, but I, but sometimes they excite our holy imagination. So we can think on them, but we, we can't carry them in the same authority of Scripture has. But I have no doubt some of them are right. I just don't know which ones are exactly right and what human element when they came back, if they told the story a little bit wrong. So you don't want to take people's, even fervent believers who had death experiences, you don't want to make it equal to inspire Scripture. It needs to be a, a different category, but it can still be helpful. It can still be used by the Lord to stir up our holy imagination because that's what we're really doing when we're reading these passages. We're asking the Lord to give us seed thoughts from the Scripture and then to let us understand it and feel the power of what this means about our life in the days to come. Beloved, you're really going to be around in 50 years, 500 years, 5,000 years, and 5 million years. You're really going to be around talking and eating and relating to people all of those different time frames. One of the reasons people so are so uh, uh, afraid of death or just so, even as believers, just so 
terrified by it, or, or maybe that's not the word for everybody, is because we don't have understanding that we will really be physical people on a physical earth, eating physical food, teaching and relating and ministering to one another and leading. You will all teach one another in various capacities uh, according to what God has entrusted to you. Beloved, your ministry hasn't even hardly begun. Our ministry on this side is only a, a very small down payment as to what our ministry is intended to be in the mind of God. Paragraph E. Now, now I'd like you, my goal is for you to get familiar with these very simple stories so you can think about the resurrected body through the lens of these stories. That's the reason I'm telling these uh, different excerpts of Jesus' testimony. Paragraph E, Jesus did not always appear in his glory. Sometime he appeared so fully human that the people that saw him didn't even know this is the resurrected man from the grave. And there will be times, I am convinced, in the future where you will be able to release or restrain the glory, whatever measure of glory. And the measure of glory we all have will vary so greatly. Now, uh, one of the insights that I recall, I've read on a number of occasions of people that have had heavenly experiences, is this, that people that are in higher dimensions of glory, when they're fellowshipping with people with lesser capacities for the glory of God, they veil their glory when they're fellowshipping with them in different parts of the heavenly city. Now, people have can have a lot of fun with that, you know, like, hey, you know, when you get there, make sure you come up and visit me, or they can go the other approach. <laughs> You know, I want to be able to come up and visit you, depending on what, you know, if they're in a humble mood or the other mood. But uh, I've had, you know, we've, you know, heard jokes about that through the year, but I believe, through the years, but I believe that there's substance to that. It's like Jesus, when he's meeting with different people, he is restraining his glory significantly. However, in John, I mean, in Revelation 1, I don't have this in the notes, Revelation 1.18, when he stands before John on the island of Patmos, of course you know what happens. John falls at his feet like a dead man. The man most familiar with Jesus is John the Apostle, and he falls like a dead man before a his good friend Jesus, because Jesus releases more of his glory for John to see it. Well, here with Mary um, uh, Magdalene, He's restraining his glory. She doesn't even recognize who he is. Now, I think he has a cape on because in the movie he has a cape on. So that's kind of how... I mean, he did. In the movie, he came with a cape and she goes, Mary, Rabboni, Jesus. And he pulled his cape off. I go, no wonder she didn't see it. Solved the mystery right there. He had a cape on. Now... I'd go soft with that if I was you. Don't quote that too much. <laughs> but when she turned around, verse 14, she saw Jesus standing there. She did not know it was him. That is amazing to me. Now, we find uh, in John 20, verse 1, I have, the no- I have it in the notes, that it was early in the morning. It was still dark, too. So that could, uh, you know, undo the cape theory. That it was early in the morning and it was still dark. But Jesus is standing in front of her, talking to her. It's dark. She thinks he's the gardener. Verse 15, she said, Woman, why are you weeping? Supposing him to be the gardener after he spoke. He said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me. 
And I'll take him, I'll go take him away. Jesus said, Mary. And when he said the Mary, she goes, it's you, teacher. Rabboni, teacher. When he said Mary, it registered to her because it was that same familiar voice. And so there's uh, several principles that we could understand from this passage. One being that Jesus is restraining his glory. He's only showing forth his humanity. He's not lighting up the skies. It's dark. But he uh, chooses to veil uh, the brightness of who he is. But when he speaks the name Mary, she recognizes him, not because she sees glory, because she recognizes the voice of a friend who had the same voice, because Jesus will have the same voice. He has it now as he did then. It's the same man with the same body. It's just raised from the dead. You will have the same voice now, but glorified. We will recognize one another even by our voices like Mary did. Recognize Jesus. Now, I'm just wondering where this is going in the singing department. That, that's a half joke and half serious. I think there will be, I don't think everybody will sing the same quality then like they, they don't now. I think there'll be so much diversity of glory in the age to come like there is diversity of glory right now. And I believe there will be singers amongst the eternal family that will sing so outstanding even above and beyond the multitudes. There'll be undoubtedly many of them like there are in this age that have an exceptional voice, small percentage, but still a large number. And I just can't, um, I just can't wait to hear Paula singing in the age to come. Wow, I mean, that's good. Oh, I, I mean, it will be awesome. It will be better than that, too. Okay. Paragraph F. The disciples touch Jesus. Now, none of, now, none of these verses are, are just uh, irrelevant. They're all meaningful. And, and what I want to throw them out there is not the point is it to try to find every principle with every one. To throw them out there to put you on a treasure hunt to figure out what could be implied in every single one of these insights into Jesus' resurrected body given by the Scripture. So take these and get in your E12 groups and, and just talk about it and just go back and forth and say, wait, there's more. Holy Spirit, what are you telling us by this revelation of Jesus' body? Well, they could touch Jesus. It said in Matthew 28, 9, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. And they came, they held him by the feet. They held on to his physical feet. He wasn't a spirit like a, like a ghost that he passed through. They didn't grab him and go, whoa, you know, where, what, where'd you go? They actually grabbed onto his feet and held him in his resurrected body. Now, I can't believe I forgot to insert the text, but I have it here in F. John 21, verse 12 and 13, he ate fish. I, was gonna, I, I just missed it. And, of course, I love the Alan Hood theological dilemma. I'd never heard it until Alan preached it. He said that Jesus ate the fish... Physical fish. Then he walked through the walls. He said, did the fish go through the walls? The newly eaten fish. I don't know. Don't spend a lot of time on that on your E12 group. Stay with the Bible verses. But did the fish go through the walls with him or did they stop? You know, because... If you find the answer, Alan would just love just a whole bunch of emails on this just to discuss it. So just send it to him. 
AllenHood.com, and he'll appreciate it. Okay. Paragraph G. <laughs> no, he won't, I'm sure. <laughs> the disciples on the road to Emmaus did not recognize him at first. It's the same principle. And this Matthew, this Luke 24 account has, has a lot of turns and twists to it. I mean, a lot of different dimensions that could be understood about the resurrection. So read it over. Become familiar with it. Let's read a little bit of it. So it was. While they were conversing with Jesus. Now we're talking about these two unnamed disciples. They're on the road to Emmaus. That's how, that's how they got their name. The disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're unnamed. And Jesus drew near to them. So here's these two guys talking and they're grieving over the events that happened in Jesus' life. And they don't, and they're, they're pondering it. And this man, who's Jesus, they don't know, draws near to them and they're thinking, hello. And this man, Jesus, begins to walk with him, but they don't even know it's Jesus. That's how physical his resurrected body is. That's how human it is. And that's part of the, that's part of the reason the Holy Spirit is highlighting this feature, because our resurrected body will be fully human and fully physical, with all the capacities of the supernatural realm. Verse 16, I don't really know what this means. Their eyes were restrained. I'm not sure what that means. Maybe they, they had never seen Jesus in the natural before. They had heard of him, but they'd never actually seen him. They didn't have photographs in those days, obviously. And so the Holy Spirit doesn't register to them who he is. Different testimonies, again, of, of, of people that have had heavenly experiences, testify that sometimes they know by the Spirit who they're talking to. They're talking to one of the saints of old, and they know it. And other times, they don't. And I wonder, I don't know this for a fact, so don't uh, teach this like it's a Bible doctrine, but I wonder if this phrase, their eyes were restrained, relates to that uh, uh, concept that sometimes the Holy Spirit opens the eyes even when there's no natural knowledge of the person, I mean, of what they look like. And my guess is these men, this is the guess, they had never seen him before, but it's possible by the Spirit they could have known because sometimes that happens, and maybe many times. And, of course, the, the principle of that would be if, in fact, that's true that we know sometimes and don't know by the Spirit without natural knowledge, if that's what that is actually referring to, that the Holy Spirit restrained that supernatural knowledge, beloved, in the age to come, there will be, my guess, is not counting the millennial population that grows to a significant number, probably some billions. Somebody calculated it for me, and, you know, one guy said 50 billion people in a, in a, in a thousand years because of the health and because of the uh, prolonged life and the large amount of families. I, I don't really know. I don't, I don't know how you would figure that, but different ones have debated that, and it's kind of interesting. But maybe some millions in the millennium, but don't even talk about them. I'm guessing two to three billion saints from all of history, counting the great harvest at the end, the great revival. Beloved, these two or three billion plus another 10 to 50 billion in the millennial kingdom, that will be part of the eternal family. Whatever that number is, I have no way of knowing. You will actually get to know them one by one and know their individual stories throughout all of eternity. You will not automatically know them. But there might be times where the Holy Spirit, where you'll run into somebody and you will know who they are, but you will still have to hear their story. You might run into David and know it's David. David won't have, you know, 
King David, IHOP staff. He won't have a name tag on. I mean, he had the first IHOP. You realize that, don't you? We borrowed the name from him and Isaiah and a few others. So I think it's possible that we will know them, but that's not my real point. My real point is in this is that we will need, we will have not need to, that sounds like it's a, a labor, but I think it will be a privilege. It will be exciting. You will get to meet saints from all over the earth and hear their stories and then introduce them to other people that you meet in the resurrection and the and then the, you'll get together. There'll be a whole new combination, relational dynamics, because you're introducing the new ones to some of your older friends and some of these people you won't even meet for 5,000 years. But you'll be telling and stories and, and sharing and connecting, and some relationships will be closer than other relationships because the knowledge will be more uh, fully expressed and shared. It won't be we're all uh, robots you know, and there's with a, you know, a relational chip in us, we push a button, hi, I relate to you, I love you, I know you, I value you. It won't be like that. We'll be real humans with various capacities for information and stories that are all diverse and different tastes and different personalities, and some will bond to others more than others do. It's just like even amongst the 12, um, amongst Jesus' followers. He had the 500 that he appeared to in 1 Corinthians 15. He had the 120 that made it to the upper room. He had the 70. He had the 12. He had the 3. And then he had John the Apostle who named himself five times the one Jesus loved. <laughs> I mean, he just put it right out there, man. He goes, I'm the one God likes. Of course, I believe everybody can can uh, run with that. If you have uh, the revelation and the boldness to take hold of that, I believe all of us can be the disciple whom the Lord loves. But John said it five times about himself. He laid his head on the Lord's breast. He had a unique uh, connection to the Lord as a man. I'm talking about in, in Jesus' humanity. As a man, Jesus has different relationships with different people in his humanity. And I believe that's just a very exciting uh, dynamic about eternity. Eternity, heaven on earth, will not be static. It won't be just... Automated. It will be very dynamic with all kinds of differences and diversity within the relationships. Verse 27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them the Scripture. So we know that in the resurrection, we teach one another the Scripture, right? And I believe there's a number of passages that could back that up. But here's a man in the the resurrected body teaching others the Scripture. Incidentally, this Bible that you have will be the same Bible you will be pouring over one billion years from now. This Bible does not become obsolete at the second coming. Matter of fact, this Bible, the second coming, takes on a whole other meaning. You will be studying the book of Acts and the book of Revelation, and you will be studying the book of Psalms. A billion years from now, you will be pouring over the Word of God and sharing it with one another. That's why the spirit of revelation that we gain in this age, we will take with us. There's a continuity between the ages. That's as well, I'm learning it, but, you know, you know, there's nothing to do with it. I, I wouldn't take that approach. Number one, it changes your heart. Number two, it brings you into another uh, a level of experience with the Lord. But number three, you, you'll have that, whatever truth you've really received, you will carry that truth, and everybody will carry different measures and even different focus of truth. 
We'll have different areas of emphasis according to our own personalities in the age to come. We won't all say every Bible verse in every conversation. We will have areas of emphasis that really excite us at different times, just like now. Verse 30. And as he sat at the table with them, he took bread, he blessed it, and he broke it. And the idea is, he gave it to them, but they ate it. And most uh, uh, Bible commentators agree that Jesus ate the bread too, because he broke it with them like he did in the upper room and shared the communion meal with them. doesn't say he ate it, but that's the assumption. And uh, 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 the vast majority agree that he ate this. Because he ate fish and he ate, uh, and uh, he had a, uh, there's other uh, Bible verses that are clear about eating in the resurrection. Then their eyes were opened when they broke bread and they knew him. And he vanished. Here he is with a physical body, but he can vanish. How did that work? How does a person with a physical body vanish? I don't know. I can't wait to find out. Top of page 2, paragraph H. Now, on this occasion, Jesus terrified the disciples in Jerusalem. Now, he's already appeared to them. They've uh, seen him. Different ones have seen him. But he still he terrifies them because he appears with a greater release of his glory. <clears throat> This is like uh, what happened in Revelation 1, verse 17 and 18, when John fell as a dead man. Revelation 1, 17 and 18, he fell like a dead man before Jesus because Jesus showed more of his glory. He manifested more of it. Of course, John's here as well. Verse 36, and as they uh, uh, said these things, as the disciples on the road uh, to Emmaus were giving their testimony of meeting Jesus, All of a sudden, Jesus stands in the midst of them. These two disciples are going, and Jesus said this, he broke bread, he was awesome, we didn't know who he was, and then suddenly we found out he gave us such awesome insights into the the, uh, prophets and the Psalms. He, He was a great, he's a great Bible teacher. And I can just hear, suddenly, Jesus is in the midst of, he goes, peace, because they're terrified. They thought this, this is not possible. He just, the idea, he comes right to the wall. doesn't say it, but the idea is that suddenly he's in their midst. They were supposing, and they were supposing they had seen the Spirit. They go, I just, they were terrified. That's all. Just leave it there. It goes on in verse, in a verse or two later in the same account, verse 39, says in Luke, uh, uh, I, Luke 24, verse 39. Jesus looks at him. He says, Behold my hands and behold my feet. It is I myself. He goes, I got hands and feet. He goes, I'm not a spirit. Handle me. There he is again. Touch me. Handle me. We will be able to touch each other in the age to come. A spirit does not have flesh and bones like I have. Now, this is a a perplexing uh, passage to me. This is one that I really would like to understand if you have insight on it. You know, I was teasing about sending Alan Hood the uh, thing about the fish hitting the wall. <laughs> but I, I, I've pondered over this for some years, and I've never, I've looked at many commentaries, and nobody addresses it, at least none of the ones I've looked at. Jesus said, I have 
flesh and bones. And the passage I put that next to is Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.50, the one there on the PowerPoint lower. It says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. So flesh is in both categories. Now, I understand that bone, that blood cannot inherit the kingdom, but bones do. We have bones in our resurrected body. Is that interesting? I asked one guy, I said, what did you think you had? And I go, I don't know, I've never thought about it. But I don't, I don't, I can't fully reconcile these statements. I'm sure there's no contradiction in them. But Jesus said in his resurrected body, he called it flesh and bones, even though it's incorruptible flesh, even though it's glorified flesh, and he he undoubtedly means something different than what Paul's saying. I've never been able to reconcile that, but I'm convinced there is a a simple answer to it. Uh, Just, uh, you know, you read it through a different lens, you go, oh, that's exactly what he's talking about. That Paul's talking about corruptible flesh, and Jesus is talking about glorified, resurrected human body, and they're just using the same words. I'm, I'm not sure. But isn't it interesting that you will have flesh and bones forever? But it will be glorified. It won't be the flesh like you have now. It will be a far uh, uh, more stable and powerful. It will be not be subject to sickness or injury at all. But Jesus called it flesh. It's just, not in, it's just not corruptible flesh like Paul's talking about. You know, the reason you like the earth is because you were born of the dust. It says in, I think it's Genesis 2-7, it says that God formed Adam out of the dust. He formed Adam out of the dust. And God just created the dust. He just created the earth in the natural realm. And then it says in Genesis 2-7, He breathed the, the breath of life into Adam. So Adam had flesh, he had the natural realm, and he had the breath of life, he had the supernatural realm. Adam had both dimensions together. In Genesis 2-7, I didn't put that in the notes, but the idea is we are spirit. There's something in our heart is what I mean, is that we long for the earth for the earth realm because we were made from it and we were made of it. But the good news is you will forever live in the earth realm. And when God made the earth, and He made Adam and Eve from the earth, from the dust, when, he, when God created Adam in this way, God said it was very good. It was very good that He created Adam. And, of course, Eve came from His side, of course. But the idea is that that was not a secondary plan to God. When God made Adam out of the natural dust in the the earth realm, that was a glorious insight the Father had. That was not a secondary plan of God. That was how God meant it to be. And the fact that you long for a life on the earth that's fully physical, but all the glories of the supernatural testifies you're made from the dust, but the breath of God is in you as well. You long for eternity in the supernatural realm. You long for both, and God is going to bring both together in your experience. It's so exciting. And it's so personal. This is really your story. This is not just a Bible doctrine that doesn't relate to you. This is really your story. The great physician, you're sitting in, in, the, uh, in the doctor's office, he says, you have a terminal disease, but I have good news. I have the answer. And you lean forward with great attentiveness because you see yourself in the story of this answer that the great physician gives. And that great physician, Jesus, is giving us the answer. 
says in paragraph J, Acts 10, verse 40 to 41, God raised him up. God, Peter's talking. He's talking at Cornelius' household in Acts 10, the famous story. God, and he says, God raised up Jesus on the third day. He showed him openly. In other words, in the resurrection. He showed him to witnesses chosen beforehand by God. It's interesting that Peter describes himself as the witnesses chosen beforehand by God. I like that term. Even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Now, we don't have any examples. We don't uh, know where he drank in the Gospels, in the resurrection, except at the communion time with the uh, uh, disciples on the road of Emmaus. But he ate and he drank. Beloved, you will be able to drink, not just water. There will be undoubtedly all manner of liquids because Jesus talked about in uh in uh, Luke chapter nine, I mean Luke chapter twenty-two, he said, "You will sit at me with me at the table, and you will partake of this meal of of the bread and the wine. You will drink of it and eat it with me in the age to come." So that's my assumption: is that Jesus broke bread with them. Paragraph K: Jesus possibly walked through walls. The Scripture doesn't explicitly say he walked through walls. It, it hints that he walked through walls, but it doesn't just say it explicitly. On the two occasions when the doors were shut, he just appears. And then here I have the uh, index K, that Jesus had the scars from the nail prints in his hands on his feet, and he had the, spe- the wound from the spear still in his side. And his resurrected body, he's the only one with a scarred body forever. Now you understand that when, and I'm sure most of you know this, when Jesus became a man, the arrangement with the Father was such that if he became human to save us, he had to be human forever. Jesus didn't become a man, put on the robes of humanity, come down to the earth, live obedient, pay the price on the cross, raise from the dead, and then take off the robes of humanity and go back to just being only God. Beloved, when he agreed to become man, he had to become human forever. And billions and billions of years, he would be in the form of a man. Yes, in the resurrected body, but he would have a body that he never had before. It was something different than he had in eternity past. This was a huge decision on his part, and he would have a body with scars in it forever. And every time we talk to him in fellowship... And those that are working closely with him and governing his, his kingdom, they will see the scars in his hands. And they will testify of his passion and his commitment to you and to his people. Verse 19, John 20, verse 19. Now when the doors were shut, the disciples were assembled together because they were afraid of the Jews. Because the Jews were going to come and kill them, they thought. Jesus came and stood in the midst. And that's where we get the idea he passed through walls, right right, right there. He stood in the midst. And he said, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands, and he showed them his side, the, the, the uh, wound from the spear. Verse 24, now Thomas was not with them when Jesus came and stood uh, in the room. Again, the doors are shut. It seems that he walks through the wall. Again, it doesn't say it, but it certainly looks that way. 
And most agree that's what happened. Verse 25. Thomas said, unless I see, unless I see in his hand the print of the nails of my own eyes and I put my finger into the print and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Verse 26. Eight days later. He's saying this for eight days. You know, day seven or eight. Thomas says, I still don't buy it. I still don't buy it. Well, he was about to have the shock of his life. There the disciples were again inside. Jesus came, the doors being shut. It says it two times. Eight days apart. Stood in their midst. So two times it appears as though he walks right through the wall. Which is similar to the... uh, account in Luke 24, verse 36 or 37, we just looked at when he frightened and terrified them when the disciples on the road of Emmaus were giving the report, and all of a sudden Jesus stands in the room. It doesn't say the doors are shut, but that's kind of what we assume. Verse 27, he said to Thomas, reach your finger here. He took his hand and reach your hand here and put it into his side. Because Jesus wanted, not just for Thomas's sake, but he wanted it recorded in the Word of God that Jesus has a physical body forever. There's no question whatsoever. Okay, let's uh, look at paragraph M. Paragraph M, Jesus appeared to the disciples in his resurrected body. Again, he's teaching them for 40 days. Acts chapter 1, verse 3, he presented himself alive after his sufferings. And he was seen by them during 40 days, and he was speaking, you could put the word teaching, things concerning the kingdom. Concerning the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is giving them teachings and they're seeing him. And again, we're, it's really established, but it's still amazing how many believers picture a, a non-physical eternity. But Jesus, it's clear if you put them all together, his, 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 uh, body and his experience is so physical when he's with them. And that's the point they're making. And he teaches them. And again, we will have teaching ministries. Everybody will speak the word to other people at a different level. Verse 9, And while they watched, he was taken up, and the cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly to heaven, he went up, and two angels stood beside. Now here's an interesting thing I'm not developing here in the notes. That Jesus doesn't fly. Because we have the you know we have the idea angels fly. That's what it says in Daniel 8, that the angel flew, Gabriel flew. But we don't uh, have the any any indication of that in the in the life of Jesus. He's escorted around to heaven by clouds. I did a study on this once, and I uh, gave a handout on it one time some years ago here, a year or two or three ago, something like that, and where all the verses where God. And the saints travel on clouds. It's amazing. I mean, you think of one, you think, well, that's kind of interesting. But you see like 10 of them, or I don't know the real number, 10 or 15. I mean, it's a lot. You're thinking, what? That when Jesus comes back at the second coming, the saints are taking up into the clouds. The clouds are, are, are seriously part of the transport system of the age to come. It's, it's actual. It's, it's kind of funny, but it's actually actual. Now, I don't know that they are restricted to travel that way, but whenever we see travel mentioned by saints 
often, this, this small amount of times, uh, of those 10 or 15 experiences, either God or saints traveling on clouds. It's interesting. So what kind of cloud will you have? Well, I'll have a night, you know, a cloud, whatever, however it goes. You got the idea. <clears throat> okay, what I'm going to end with, I'm just going to end here. Uh, the next four or five paragraphs is the idea that Jesus' body is filled with light. Because we will have light. We'll pick this up, uh, not next week, because Rick Joyner will be here, but the week after. We'll pick this up a bit, that the presence of light in our resurrected body is a is something repeated over and over, but we'll all have different levels and different degrees of glory of the light of God. And Jesus, in His humanity, has the greatest measure of divine light and glory in His resurrected body, and He can release it or restrain it according to the circumstance that uh, of which He's in. Okay, we're just going to end with that. That's enough for tonight.